The reading of the scriptures from Psalm 93, I invite uh, your uh, reverent and a faithful hearing of God's reading of the word, uh, uh, his living word here in Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Thy throne is established from of old, and thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves, more than the sound of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Thy testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits thy house, O Lord, forevermore. Psalm 93 is a psalm that celebrates God's universal reign. And there is, unlike many of the psalms, no superscription to guide us in the occasion of this psalm but it was probably written at a time of great danger to the children of Israel when they were in danger, as they often were, from their enemies and when fear and doubt had crept in upon them. It um, seems to the children of God that there are times that the dark things, the unseen things of this world disturb us. The world is mysterious to us in many ways, is it not? trust the hand of God as He moves in our lives, but it is an unseen hand. And then we seek justice often, and we seek relief often, and sometimes those things uh, do not readily appear in the immediate to us. I think that that is what was in the mind of the psalmist because it begins very abruptly with the exclamation, the Lord reigns. It's as if the psalmist was thinking about the difficulties and the dangers that face us as children of God in this world. And he begins like a cloud coming over him for his thinking to be uh, disturbed, his conscience is, is uh, disturbed, his sleep maybe went away from him, fear of the future, uncertainty of what will happen next, how God will work. And then, all of a sudden, he remembers and exclaims, Yet the Lord reigns. And it begins with just such an explanation of the majesty and the sovereignty of our God. When we speak of God's sovereignty, um, and we often do, it bears maybe a little uh, of a broader definition than what we uh, have maybe thought of recently. Um, in describing the sovereignty of God, we might put it in these terms. As God has created all things, He also exercises dominion over all things, great and small. And this means that His rule is absolute. He does as He wills, with whom He wills, when He wills. He is not influenced or guided by anything outside of Himself. He never changes he does not have to because His will and purpose is perfect and eternal. 
just as he himself is perfect and eternal. Nothing and no one is ultimately able to challenge God's authority or to question his providence as it unfolds in our life. For us, Psalm 93 is the outworking of God's sovereignty in the kingship of Jesus. And I want us to see that in three uh, headings this morning, and I'll give them to you now. First of all, King Jesus controls His world as found in verses 1 and 2. Second, found in verses 3 and 4, King Jesus crushes His enemies. And then finally, in verse 5, King Jesus comforts His people. Psalm 93 reveals and opens up to us God's working out of His sovereignty in the establishment of Messiah's kingdom on the earth. First of all, King Jesus controls His world. Verse 1, as I said, begins abruptly with an exclamation, The Lord reigns. In other words, the Lord has assumed His kingship. He is now exercising all of the authority and power that's due unto Him. And this is seen in the acts of wisdom and power that Christ puts forth from the kingly throne. Real acts of kingship being carried out. Not a king in name only or position only, but a king of power and strength and glory who speaks and it is done. And so verse 1 tells us that the Lord reigns and He is clothed with majesty the Lord is clothed, uh, has clothed and girded Himself with strength. It's as if the Lord takes the power, the unlimited power of God, and has robed Himself with it. And the majesty or the glory of God shines all around Him, in the, not necessarily only in appearance, which it does, but in the actions which He speaks and they happen. Let's look in a place where the majesty and the glory of God exalted on His throne is evident, and that's in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. If you'll turn there with me, Isaiah 6 from verse 1 to 4, we see wise and powerful actions symbolized that are being put forth in God's governing of the world, and particularly through Christ who has been enthroned. You remember this passage prophet says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. That is a lofty and majestic and powerful King who sits upon His throne. And when the Word goes forth from His mouth, the foundations of the heavenly temple, they tremble at the voice of our majestic King. He controls His world in real acts of kingship. That kingship can be seen not only in what He speaks and it is done, but in the stability of the world. 
He's clothed himself or taken his majesty to himself. In other words, we might say that he's using it. <laughs> he's the king and he does what the great king of all the earth should do. But it says in the last part of verse 1, indeed the world is firmly established that it will not be moved. We would, could not be sure of anything if we were not sure that Jehovah has dominion. And the very world itself is established and is held in order by one king, and that is King Jesus. It's, if it were not for Him, disorder and chaos would reign. And yet in Him, everything is orderly and sure. You know, there are those today who worry that we, through our own human failings and abuse, um, if it might be called that, of God's creation, might destroy it. In fact, the recent prophet I will not name has said that we have 10 years remaining on this earth before it's destroyed if we do not act and act quickly. But the King, Jesus, has firmly established the world, not only through creation and through holding all things together so that they might work in the orderly fashion and continue sun-raised in the morning, setting in the evening, springtime and harvest, summer, winter, fall. He's established and ordered those things and He continues to cause them in His creative power that continues on to move. But not only are they created and held together by Him, but the verse there says that this world that He has established will not be moved, and we might interpret until He moves it. <laughs> it will not be moved unless He moves it. There was an occasion in the Old Testament where He stopped the earth from moving. Well, that wasn't due to man's abuse of the world or global warming or depletion of the ozone. That was because God, who governs all things in creation, said to the world, stop there for a period of time. And when the time had passed and the Word of God had been glorified through the prophet, He spoke again and the world re regained again its momentum. God has slung the stars in space in the universe as He wills it to be. The stability of the world is an act of kingship, just like the spoken Word of God, and it is done as an act of kingship. He has assumed His reigning, it says in verse 1. Not only is His acts of kingship seen in the stability of the world, but also in the immortality of the King. Verse 2 tells us, Thy throne is established from of old, thou art from everlasting. First it speaks of His position, then it speaks of His person. The position is that which God has ordained from before the foundation of the world because God existed before the foundation of the world. All, as far back as you can go in your mind, in your thinking, in eternity past, as far back as you can think, keep going, keep going, God was there, always having existed, always the same. And He has determined that the throne of Christ would be firmly established and it would not be moved. It was from old, and Christ Himself is from everlasting. The immortality of the King. Earthly kings come and go. Earthly powers rise and fall. When you study the book of Daniel, you see the world powers as they come to great power on this earth, and they certainly exercise a dominion that God gives them. 
They are under the purpose and plan and power of God, given that authority for a time, for good or ill. But they don't last forever because being men and women, they fade off the scene. They die or they're displaced or the world power, as dominant as it was, is no more. But our King is eternal in the heavens. Thou art from everlasting. The person, the Son of God, eternal, is from everlasting. Well, there's a place that uh, shows this in the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And I invite you to turn there in chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 16 and 17. Speaking of Christ, our ascended and glorified King, ruling from His throne in heaven, it says, Colossians 1.16, For in Him, Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist or are held together. Not only did He create it, Whatever may be created and whatever is created, it not only was created by Him, but it was created for Him. It is subservient to Him. All creation falls before the feet of Christ. We acknowledge it as believers now that He is our King and our Creator. But all, even those who are the enemies of Christ in this world throughout time until He comes again, all will acknowledge one day that He is sovereign over them and that they were created, in fact, for His glory and for His ultimate purposes. God's purpose of the enthronement of Jesus was an eternal and an unchanging purpose. So King Jesus controls His world. But secondarily, not only does He control His world, but King Jesus crushes His enemies. And I love what verse 3 brings to our mind. The frequent and the violent assaults of those who are the enemies of God and of God's people is compared in verse 3 to the continual crashing of the waves upon the rocks of a seashore. Let's look at the verses again. The verse 3, that is, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. Repeated three times as if, the psalmist, through the continual attacks of the wicked and wickedness in the world, is beginning to feel the tension of that. The floods, Lord, the floods, the floods. What do the floods do? Well, the floods, as I said, represent those things that can come and they can overwhelm us. I don't know if it's true in your family, but Donnie, my wife, and I always talk about things coming in threes. I know they don't really always come in threes. That's just an idea. But it does seem that they come more than one at a time. This one thing comes and you say, whew, that was kind of tough. Then on the heels of that, another. Okay, here we go. And another, and another. Like the pounding waves of the sea. The floods, the floods, the floods. And we begin to feel our shoulders tense and our jaws clench. We wonder, how? How can I make it? So relentless and never-ending, it just keeps going and going and going, and it's as if we're, we're among those violent waves and we're, 
We're reaching up as high as we can to catch a breath only for the waves to sweep over us again. Well, that's certainly what the psalmist is picturing for us. The acts and the efforts of the ungodly against God who they cannot reach in His heavenly throne, against King Jesus who is untouchable, they turn to us, the people of God, the church upon the earth. We feel that sting, do we not? We feel that tension of being a child of God but living in a fallen world. So the floods have lifted up. First of all, it says that they've lifted up their voice. The voice means the words that are spoken against the truth, the words spoken against the kingdom of Christ and the thoughts that come with them, seeking to change opinions about what we hold dear. The floods in the book of Revelation are likened to the words of the Antichrist and all who follow him in Revelation 12. And let's look at it, Revelation 12, 15, I believe... uh, that Phil alluded to it last week. Revelation 12 is the representation of the church, the people of God, the covenant community. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 12, the serpent, notice the similarity to to Psalm 93, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. Not Not a small little meandering stream. The assault of the devil is like the pounding floods that suddenly come upon the seashore and wash upward and inward. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. This is false teaching. These are words. The floods have lifted up their voice first in what is spoken against the kingdom of God and against Christ and spoken against His people. It can come at us like a flood. All of a sudden, the voice of the wicked, the voice of doubt, the voice of lies. The devil is a liar, always has been, always will be. And he is a father of lies. And so when we see there in Revelation that the serpent, in order to get at the covenant community, pours out a flood out of his mouth, we're not to think of a literal flood of water, which they must run from in the physical sense, just like the psalmist is not thinking of literal waves pounding against the rocks of the seashore. We're to think of the false ideas that counter the truth of the Word of God and that they come against the truth and come against the truth and come against the truth. The floods have lifted up their voice. The psalmist cries. But they also lift up their waves. Back in Psalm 93, verse... Three, it says not only the voice, but the pounding waves. These pounding waves would be the violent assaults. We look all over the world today, and we're not experiencing it very much here in America. We, we see the pounding waves of violence cast out from wicked uh, rulers and those that follow uh, Satan the, to try to destroy physically and, of course, spiritually if they could, but they cannot, those that name the name of Christ. Were it to come to that here in our own country, we would know uh, the sting of that. We would know the uh, intensity of that type of persecution. Certainly it's not out of the question. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet to predict, but I know the Word of God says that, that there will be an increase in the activity of the ungodly kingdom prior to the return of Christ. 
whether that be here in intensity or other places or all of the above, I do not know. But I know the psalmist says the floods have lifted up the pounding waves. And don't you get the idea that it's one wave after another, after another, after another? I heard, unfortunately, that down in Falls, not Falls Creek, but um, Turner Falls, Davis, that two people uh, drowned recently. I'm so sorry to hear that. I've been there many times in the past. Most times the water is not to the degree and strength that it could pull someone under, but evidently with all the rains we've had, I don't know the whole story, so forgive me for that, but evidently there was enough to overwhelm these two individuals. Or maybe they got themselves in a situation where, where once under the water they could not regain. But think more than that of the pounding waves of the raging sea. When the tide rises and the waves come in and they begin to break over and the thundering crash of the white water and the boiling up of the sand in the, in the, at, the, at the bottom of the, of the seashore there and the, and the power of that wave pushing in and then pulling out. And it's continual. The psalmist says it's... it's the pounding waves. Well, the enemy will never give up. He is relentless. And so we feel sometimes the sting of that. But notice verse 4, because we're talking about King Jesus crushing his enemies. And though we feel the severity of the persecution of the evil one while we're here, notice verse 4, but contrasted to that, more than the sound, of the mighty waters, more than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Now it seems to us that circumstances and attacks and difficulties and persecution are to us the ultimate struggle and strain. And that seems powerful, and it is. But yet, almost as if these things were nothing to him at all, more than the sound, the, the voice of, of ungodliness, and more than the breakers of the sea, the power of persecution and violence that may be brought to bear upon the church and has certainly been. We sang that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a hymn born out of the church militant, being persecuted severely by the power of the enemy. And yet more than all of those things, it says, the Lord on high is mighty. The psalmist begins by exclaiming the Lord reigns. And here he comes back to remember that the Lord only is the most powerful. And I belong to Him who is most powerful. These things come against me, and yet they have not the ultimate power. But the Christ who I serve, He does. They're just like noise and sounds to him who sits on the throne. He mocks them because he alone has real power and real wisdom. The kings and the mobs, the emperors and the savages, they all band together to cast the Lord and his power away from them. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. They're no threat to his authority. There's an English pastor named Abraham Wright. He's a little bit obscure and he's from the 1600s, and he commented on this psalm, and I like it, and so I thought I'd share it with you. He said, the danger of this world may exceed our ability to resist. It certainly does, but it never exceeds God's ability to assist. 
And that's good. That's something to hang our hats on. Even though we're constantly assaulted like the waves of the sea, the Lord is a rock that remains unmoved and unshaken by the foaming rage of the wicked. And therefore, we in Him remain unmoved by those things. Well, not only does Jesus control His world and crush His enemies, but the psalm goes on and speaks of, in verse 5, of Jesus comforting His people. When the psalmist calms himself in his mind over all of the rage of the wicked and the severe sting of their assaults, he calms himself in the Lord in verse 5 and he says, Thy testimonies are fully confirmed. Just as this creation is fixed and sure, the revelation of God's truth is beyond all question. Our faith is a faith based upon the objective and true and eternal Word of God. We're teaching in Sunday school through 1 Thessalonians, and Paul is careful to guard himself and the other apostles against the attacks of those that would think that they're just come-and-go shysters that come into town and peddle something like snake oil, a new philosophy or a new idea, and then they go away with the gain of the people and the admiration of the people never to be seen again. Paul says... We haven't followed anything from man, no cunningly devised fables, no thing invented by man. In fact, Paul is careful to say, I didn't receive the gospel from man. I wasn't taught the gospel as many other of the apostles were taught it from Christ. He received it directly from revelation from Christ himself. It's the word of God, eternal and true. But all other religions, all other philosophies, all other ideas, and there's so many today that compete with the truth of the gospel, aren't there? So many that, that call for your attention. Ron, come over here and hear my words. I have a new philosophy. I have a new idea. But is it true? Is it based on the Word of God? Is it equate? With the truth of the Word of God, if not, it must be rejected. A thousand voices will call, but only the Word of the Lord stands forever. If you'll come back to Colossians again in chapter 2 this time, we find a word related to the eternality and the power and the um, impeccability of the truth of God's Word. Colossians 2, verses 6 to 10 Actually, let's start in verse 5. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is truth. Now notice verse 6 and following. This gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even, it has been, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's, that's chapter 1. Now let's go to chapter 2. Sorry about that. that. That also. Now verse 6 of chapter 2. And you therefore, have re, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Notice what this truth does. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed with overflowing gratitude. See to it 
Okay? This is a caution, church. See to it that no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority." the eternality of the word of the king. The king himself is eternal. The word of the king revealed to us in scripture is eternal. And we ought to guard ourselves continually against any other voice which would speak otherwise. The straightforward, clear, transparent, open word of God. The word of God has been spoken, and great is the number of those who have published it. And we are to heed that word. We are to hear that word. We are to know that word so that when the other voices come in, we say, stop right there. I do not receive that because it is not the word of God. King Jesus comforts his people by his word. We're comforted by a God who never changes, and so his word never changes. Think about it. What greater king could we ever hope to serve? He who sits upon an eternal throne and governs by his spoken word, which is always done. He who crushes his enemies and our enemies before us. And he who, like a shepherd, gently picks up the little lambs in his arms and with tender care brings them to safety and nurses them back to hell. What better greater king could we ever hope to serve? Let me ask you a question right here. If Jesus is not king over you and over your life, and you have not submitted yourself to his kingship and his sovereignty, what king then are you serving? There are kings many, lords many among the world, powers, principalities, as we read in Colossians, though, that he, King Jesus, has created all of them and he governs them for his wise purposes according to his power because they were created by him and for him. Would you not rather serve the creator and sovereign rather than the created? If you're not a Christian, what rules over you then? Who then will protect you from the constant attacks of an enemy or protect you from yourself? All other rulers will be brought low before him. All other rulers, powers, principalities will be brought by below his feet. And he will raise his hands over them in an act of sovereign judgment. Well, verse 5 back in Psalm 93 concludes by saying, not only thy testimonies are fully confirmed, which to us, just like the creation is established and sure until he does what he wills with it, so we need not worry. The word of God is established and sure. And then it says something about the character of God the King, but not only that, but about his people, the subjects. Holiness is fitting for thy house, O Lord, forevermore. Because God himself is holy, by his power to change us, to mold us and shape us, 
we have in him also become holy. Friends, we could not stand before the judgment of a holy God if it, we ourselves were not perfectly holy. You say, oh, wait a minute. I'm honest with myself. I know I'm not perfectly holy. And I'm honest with myself, nor am I. We must have another. We must have a propitiation. We must remember what the purpose of the lid of the ark was in the Old Covenant. The ark was the box, but it had a lid that was made according to how God showed Moses after the pattern of heaven. And the lid was called the mercy seat. Upon that mercy seat was poured the blood of the sacrifice. Under the mercy seat was contained the law of God in stone tablets. The hard commands of the law which demanded that we yield obedience and yet we cannot. Which stands hard and fast and immovable and brings us under judgment. Yet the lid was a mercy seat or throne, if you will, a place where God would dwell by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they poured the blood of the innocent animal over that mercy seat, it was the picture of what Christ would do and has done when He was upon the earth of taking His innocent blood, the one for the many, and pouring that blood over the seat of mercy and propitiate, satisfy the demands of the law and the wrath of God for us, not for Himself. He was righteous and holy and no sinner, but He did it for us. And so God, who is holy, and we must be holy to be in His presence, looks down upon His law, but He looks through the blood of the sacrifice of Christ, and He proclaims mercy to us who by faith have come to Christ. Christ is our propitiation, the propitiation or the satisfaction of God's just demands by His own sacrifice. These are precious words, and holiness is not only what God is, who God is and what He demands, but holiness is what He has made us to be. We are accepted in the Beloved One. Well, there's a lot of times we don't feel accepted in our own thinking. There's a lot of times we feel unworthy, and we are. But we must remember, brothers and sisters, that we are as close to God positionally as Christ is. We are not in ourselves. We are not in our righteousness. We are not in our works. We have no works. We have no merit. We have nothing which to come before God and to offer God. Therefore, we must come through the mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. And in Him, God declares once and for all, for all who believe in Him by faith, you are made righteous and holy and pure in my sight. And we're not waiting for that. It is what God has justly declared because of the sacrifice of Christ. Was Christ's sacrifice efficient? Yes. Therefore, it saves to the uttermost those who come to God by Him. And that is an experience we know now, though we also know the experience of of the remaining influences and pulls of sin in our life. We know the relentless attack of the enemy, which is never-ending. But we are, as He is, to be holy, for He is holy. I don't have to declare you holy. 
I won't observe your life and I'm not your judge. You judge a tree by its fruits, Jesus said, but the ultimate judge is God. And God will not let one soul in his presence that is not partially holy, no, absolutely holy. And again, that holiness comes from Christ. So it's fitting, isn't it, that the house of God, the throne of Christ is a holy place and only those who are holy will enter in there. Outside will be all those who will be judged. And he says, O oh Lord, this is true forevermore. Thy testimonies are fully confirmed, established, and carried out to completion. In Luke 24, Jesus said to his disciples, after his death and resurrection, he appeared to them in Jerusalem. And he said to them to confirm who he was and what he had done and to assure them that the work was complete in their behalf. He said, all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. But notice he said, these things are written about me. That's the whole of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. All things, he did refer obviously at that time to the, the Old Testament, but he spoke in the context of his death and burial and resurrection, all things, and we would include the New Testament today, that are written, were written about Him, and they must be fulfilled. And He is fulfilling them and will continue to do so. Well, the outcome of a sovereign king eternally reigning is for us holiness, holy character and holy living, not fear and reluctance, not having our minds changed back and forth like the changing waves of the ocean. This way for a time, that way for a time, we stand upon a rock. That rock is Christ. And we lean forward to the pounding waves of the, of the sea and the floods that come against us, not because we're strong, but because we stand upon the rock. And those waves beat upon us, but we're not moved. Those things weigh upon our mind from time to time and confuse us, but we're not moved. Those things can come against us one after the other after the other until we finally cry out, Lord, help or else I perish. And yet... God holds us fast, and in the end, we're not moved. Our faith remains firm because of our eternal King who reigns and rules and guides and protects His people. Christ's sovereign kingdom rules over all, and when He returns, He will overthrow every last enemy, and He's going to crush all who have opposed Him, and He will welcome His people into eternity there's a great day coming, a great solemn day when He calls upon the angels to gather all before Him and He will divide on the left and on the right as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. And He will say to the one, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And they will enter everlasting destruction. But he will say to those on his right hand, Enter, my beloved, whom I gave my life for, whom I have ruled over, whom you have served me as your king and sovereign. Enter into the joy of the Lord, prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That great day is ahead of us. May it be soon. May you be ready. May you be prepared. Yield obedience now to King Jesus. Go to Him 
and sue for peace while there's time. Kiss the son, says, lest he be angry and you perish. Otherwise, only judgment awaits. But God is a merciful, compassionate, loving God who through Christ has extended to us the propitiation, the covering to meet those demands which God will not change. And we do praise God for His mercy.